You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Welcome to Real Vision. It's Tuesday, October 13, 2020, just after market close in New York. This is the Real Vision Daily Briefing. I'm Ash Bennington. It's TG Tuesday, joined shortly by Tony Greer. But first, with the day's stories, Jack Farley. A quick note, Jack and I run a little bit long on the discussion of bank earnings. If you'd like to skip that and jump right to Tony and me, hit the button to go to the eight-minute mark. Welcome back, Jack. Thanks, Ash. Great to be here as always. So, Jack, what are the facts? Well, JP Morgan and Citigroup posted their earnings today, um, and they, they were solid earnings that they both uh, beat analysts' expectations. Um, JP Morgan posted a net income of $9.4 billion. That's a 52% increase from the previous quarter, but uh, compared to third quarter of 2019, it's actually um, pretty flat. But um, surprise, surprise. Uh, both stocks were actually down. JP Morgan down one and a half percent as we're recording this, and Citigroup down uh, over four percent. So it's a confounding sum for sure. So it's flat year over year, up uh, on a dismal Q2. Yes, um, exactly. Uh, corporate investment banking was up thirty percent year over year. Investment banking fees, specifically, up nine percent. So they really were riding that tailwind of record debt issuance um, and a flurry of IPO activity. But a weak point was net interest income, which for JP Morgan was down 9%. That's how banks make money. Is they, they capture the spread between the rate at which they lend money and the rate at which they themselves uh, can secure financing. And so with low rates, that is really um, hampering that business model. Yeah, net interest margins collapse. Uh, the amount that they're able to generate from interest obviously declines with it. Yes. Um, and even though investment banking activity increased Corporate banking, specifically um, loans to corporate, um, including their, you know, how much they pay back the revolver, was down nine percent, and that reflects uh, something that I've been following, which is, uh, you know, analysts are predicting that October will be the first month this year when high-grade borrowers, corporations, will actually not be net borrowers. I, I worry that wrong, but let me, let me explain. And that they'll, they'll basically, they will pay down more debt than they will borrow. So they will take liquidity from the system and put it back uh, into the banks. Jack, talking about the big picture, let's zoom the camera out. This is something that caught my eye uh, today in the Wall Street Journal article uh, about JP Morgan earnings. And, and I'm just going to read it directly because it's a commentary uh, on the earnings and on Mr. Diamond's uh, remarks uh, on the call. Quote, Yet J.P. Morgan chief executive James Diamond cautioned that the bank's better-than-expected results may be a temporary blip. A massive expansion of unemployment benefits and other government stimulus have buoyed the U.S. economy, uh, consumers, and businesses so far, but they need more assistance, he said. And here, for me, uh, is is the, the line, I think, that has the most impact. If the economy recovers apace, J.P. Morgan may have $10 billion more that it needs to cover soured loans, Mr. Diamond said. In a double dip recession, he said, the bank could need another 20 billion in reserves. So loan loss reserves declining quarter over quarter. 
Mr. Diamond effectively saying, uh, in the event that uh, the re recovery continues, uh, we're going to have more reserves on hand than we need in the event that the recession uh, reinstates, picks up, goes down, uh, we're going to have $20 billion gap in loan loss reserves. JP Morgan, famous for its uh, fortress balance sheet uh, approach in terms of being ultra, ultra safe uh, with their balance sheet. That's part of the reason they right. emerged from the 2008 crisis um, as strong as, as they did. They held about $33 billion in reserves for uh, Q2. I think they released actually $600 million. So yeah, as you said, their net charge-offs and, and uh, reserves for loan losses is, is down on the quarter, still uh, at $33 billion, I, I believe. Meanwhile, Citigroup actually added $300 million to uh, their loan loss reserve. So they are uh, continuing to brace uh, for a, a series of unfortunate events. Well, that's very well said in terms of the mechanics of what's actually happening. But you know, when I read this, I think of it from a, a broader, more macro perspective. Effectively, what you have the CEO uh, of, of JP Morgan saying, uh, and look, there's no dispute that JP Morgan is the best managed large bank in the country, uh, and the Fortress balance sheet, Mr. Diamond has done a stellar job of managing that bank. Uh, but they're saying, in effect, he is saying, uh, look, this is from a massive expansion in unemployment benefits and government stimulus. The reason that the economy uh, has not effectively tanked is because of government stimulus. Uh, and that should be a concern, I think, to anyone who worries about whether or not we're going to get additional stimulus. Uh, and, and the idea that you know the, the CEO of uh, the country's largest bank and probably the country's uh, best respected banker by a pretty wide margin is saying uh, that the reason that their loan loss reserves are declining uh, is because of government stimulus propping up the economy. Uh, you know, I mean, the the talk on stimulus it moves more rapidly than uh, than than equity indexes. I mean, we're recording this segment here at one o'clock in the afternoon. Uh, this doesn't air until six p.m. God knows what's going to happen on Congress uh, in, down in Congress in the next five hours. Uh, you know, this is something that should give people a little bit of pause to at least reflect. Uh, on the nature of what is driving the economy right now. Uh, yeah, absolutely, Ash. We have a will they or won't they uh, phenomenon in uh, DC, at least that's what it seems like uh, from reading Newsflow. I think it definitely will hinge on fiscal stimulus. JP Morgan uh, did stress that in their uh, earnings report. They, they issued some uh, updated projections for uh, GDP as well as unemployment. Um, and they modified them to make them look a little bit better. They still predict like third quarter 2021, we could have uh, up to 8% employment, which really is uh, a nightmare scenario. Yes, it is indeed. You know, and of course it goes without saying or should, uh, we're talking about the fiscal side of the equation, but on the monetary side, obviously uh, unprecedented loose monetary policy also propping up the current economy. Absolutely. And that goes right into um, the uh, fixed income at commodity and currency tradings, which was, you know, revenues were up 29% for JP Morgan. And that tr really did depend on the unprecedented uh, monetary stimulus, stimulus, as you said. So will that continue? Uh, we'll see. Yeah, this is the thick line that's uh, watched by uh, finance geeks and, uh, and bank nerds all over the world. So Jack, anything else for us today? Sure, Ash. You know, I, I know uh, we all want to get to Tony Greer. I'll be quick. I promise. Um, 
with with LIBOR set to be dis, uh, discontinued by the end of 2021, there's a big question as to what's going to happen to assets that were marked uh, according to LIBOR that that go past 2021. Are they going to uh, go from being a floating rate to fixed rate? So uh, yeah. it really well, depends. borrowed sometimes for 30 years uh, at a rate pegged to LIBOR. Exactly. So people and bankers are trying to find a solution to this. This week, a U.S. government-sponsored agricultural uh, lender, the Federal Farm Credit Bank's Funding Corp, um, is seeking to do a, a swap. They have almost $2 billion in LIBOR-linked bonds. Um, so that could serve as a template for future transactions. So we'll see. Interesting one to keep an eye on, Jack. Thanks for joining us. My pleasure, Ash. Thanks for having me. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Thanks, Jack. TG, Tony Greer, welcome back. What's up, Ash? Great to be here, man. So, Tony, I was just looking at the internal notes. You got a lot on your plate right now. Lockdowns, China, stocks and bonds, ECB, CPI. What's at the top of your screen right now, Tony? Uh, I mean, I guess to start with what's going on today and work backwards a little bit, Ash, as a change of pace today, we had CPI come out, say that it's clearly not running anywhere um, near the target, let alone running hot. You know, we got a 1.4% pace on the year, a 0.2% gain for September. Uh, you know, just goes to show us that for every inflationary move, that there is a deflationary move in this market. We had the bonds rally today as yields and call it the 10 year backed off from 80 basis points to 70 basis points. More importantly, that triggered a dollar retracement rally. And now we're seeing the fallout from that pretty much all over the screen today in a big S&P rotation. Yeah. Tony, talking of the dollar, what are you looking at? Are you looking at DXY? Are you looking at some of the other pairs? Yeah, well, I'm focusing most on the commodity drivers, Ash. So for my purposes, selfishly, I'm watching the euro, the Aussie dollar and the Chinese yuan. Um, they seem to be you know, correlated the most with the commodity complex. And I'm really focused in on that right now as I look for a commodity rally with an underlying inflation theme. So that number today in CPI was a little bit of a disappointment for me. Also on the dollar front this week, Ash, we got two headlines that were more Interesting that the ECB said that they're going to try to let their inflation run hot. So we've got sort of pig piggyback policy here between the Fed and the ECB. And we also had China relax their reserve requirements, which makes it a lot easier for banks to sell the Chinese yuan, which may have capped that yuan rally in the short term for now. So I think that's why we're seeing the dollar retracement right now. Yeah, that's very interesting. Uh, Tony, what are you looking at on the bond side of the equation? I know you were talking a little bit about the ten-year uh, Treasury yield a little bit earlier. We're down to about uh, somewhere around seventy-five bips right now. Yeah, so you know that inflationary feel that was in the market just got cooled off when the headline CPI number came out. You know, we landed at one point four percent on an annualized basis, nowhere near the two percent target, and so we had some of those market-based inflation um, readings back off. We had break-evens back off, the yield curve backed off everything sort of super inflationary just kind of backed off its highs. And that's why I think the S&P is just rotating today and ending up in a little bit negative territory. Yeah, I, I wonder when central banks announced that they're going to let economies run hotter for longer, uh, you know, they still can't get to the target. 
Yeah, this is a big problem, you know, with all this debt that we've got piled on in the world, you know, underlying everything. It's really tough to get inflation sparked with all this debt payment that's going on. So, Tony, what else are you looking at? Um, I'm looking at the S&P rally and thinking that we are still within the context of a rally towards the highs, Ash. I mean, I'm keeping I'm maintaining my bullish posture due to the stance that the Federal Reserve is still inflating assets. And um, I'm sure the media was presenting a much different picture this week. But I saw a really a lot of positive optics this week that contribute to the idea of an incumbent victory in November. You know, when you come in a morning with the president's health improving, you're probably going to change the attitude toward COVID a little bit. You come in on Monday and the World Health Organization has flipped their posture again on the lockdown, saying that the lockdowns may not be the best way to stop the pandemic spread again. So that takes a little bit of the fear out of the virus. And you've got, like it or not, the, the president uh, trying to confirm another conservative Supreme Court justice that may come in to help him in later on if that comes into play. And I think all of that contributes to, you know, why was the NASDAQ up 200 Monday morning and nobody really had a good answer. There was no headline news, certainly, just a continuation of this rally. And so as we hold the ground here, I think it's important to notice, you know, the president got COVID and the S&P pounded 3,200. And then he punted the stimulus talks into next year and the S&P pounded 33.40, five minutes after we got on the call last week. And from there, it was straight up. Even after an outside reversal day, it was straight up for the stock market. So to me, there's a little bit of a freight train going on there. And it sounds like it confirms a little bit more with the positives that are racking up for the Trump administration to stay in office. And I'm just trying to call it like I see it, like I think the market is telling us. And it has nothing to do with my political preference. I'm just trying to read the cards here. It's such an important thing to do to understand what you think markets are pricing uh, and then what the potential impact of either of these candidates will be. Yeah, you know, we heard, um, you know, right after the debate last week, we saw um, Kamala Harris say or mention that she was going to decriminalize marijuana. And we saw the cannabis stocks rally really sharply into the end of the week, right? The, the HMMJ, Horizon Life Marijuana Life Sciences ETF was up 14%. It was one of the biggest, biggest winners on the week. And that continued this week. So maybe that's telegraphing a Biden-Harris victory. I don't know. Maybe it just caused enough interest for participants to cover their shorts and wait and see what happens at election time. But I think either way, Either administration is going to be legalizing cannabis and we'll have that legalized around the country in the next four years. So I don't think it makes that much of a difference in that particular sector. Yeah, it does seem likely. You know, we were talking a little bit off camera uh, about markets versus uh, what pollsters are saying. If you look at the polling data, you know, depending on which poll you look at, which poll of polls you look at, the forecasts are looking like they're stacking up about 90 percent for a Biden win and 10% for a Trump win. It sounds like your suggestion is that the markets are pricing something very different. Yeah, you know, I think that markets don't like, um, they, they definitely, no matter what, they are not happy with uncertainty. And I think that it would be more contiguous for markets to have President Trump win. I think that would make them happier. And I think that it would be more difficult to buy them. And I think that if we lean toward a Biden victory, I still think that presents a lot of unknowns that would cause a lot of volatility in the market and it would likely cause a dip. And now I don't think that the dip would be fatal. It would be a dip that I'm very much looking to buy. I would have my shopping list out of stocks that I want to buy on a dip if that happened, um, because in the end, the Federal Reserve is still 
the driving force in the equity market. And as long as the biggest dog on the block is going to be monetizing and seeking inflation as aggressively as the U.S. is right now, I think that that's going to be a tough premise to fade heading into November. I really do. Yeah. So effectively, no matter which candidate uh, wins, you're going to have the Fed in the driver's seat in terms of upward pressure on asset prices. Yeah. Most importantly, Ash, we're, we are never going to let a presidential election change us as people or as traders. And we are going to keep our heads about us as everyone about us is losing theirs. And we're going to try to take advantage of the volatility no matter what happens you know, come the election, you know, where this is, this is a good opportunity where you can prove to people trading with no emotion is the best way to go. Tony, what does that mean practically when you say, you know, we're going to keep our heads, we're going to keep our heads down and we're going to keep doing what we do. What does that mean in terms of the practice of trading? Well, I would say it's, it's being, it's being prepared for either outcome, Ash, right? Uh, I think that's important here because we have a humongous binary outcome that you know the market is handicapping well let's call it the poll markets are handicapping one set of odds where i think there was an extreme as you mentioned maybe it's closer to 70 30 in biden's favor or something like that but they're anticipating that uh, but they're, the polls are showing that without any physical viewable evidence behind it right there are no chaotic biden rallies going on and then you've got the markets that seem to be rallying against the good news of President Trump beating COVID and the World Health Organization churning around on lockdowns. And I'm looking for other reasons to see why the markets might be rallying. And I'm definitely not seeing the reason that it's because of a specific Biden victory that it's rallying. So, you know, it's going to be really difficult to get the clear story. Everything is going to be open to interpretation going into the election for sure. And, you know, we know that big media is only going to interpret it one way. By the way, latest out from The Economist's election project, uh, Joe Biden, 91% to win, Donald Trump, nine. That reminds us of October last year when Hillary Clinton had 98% chance to win and Donald Trump only had two. So he's yeah. probably doing better this year than he was last year. I actually screenshotted uh, that percentage uh, as well. I think it was exactly the same, like 91 to 9 or 90 to 10. Uh, and uh, we know how that turned out. So uh, it's interesting to wor wonder about what the, the projections of these polls suggest. Well, we've even seen it, Ash, in, you know, if you drill down into the big, you know, the key states like, you know, Wisconsin and Pennsylvania and Florida and the battleground states, it looks the same this year as it did going into the 2016 election, right? Call it Wisconsin in 2016, Hillary Clinton had a 6% lead, you know, at this point going in. Donald Trump wound up taking state by a couple of percent. And fast forward to where are we today? And it says Biden has a couple of percent lead in that state. So, right. you know, either believe in the polls or you can believe in history or you can make up a decision for yourself. But it's going to be interesting to watch. Or you can check the markets like you do to see what sort of signals they're sending. Those, those are the ones that I'm seeing, Ash. And I know that, uh, you know, it's a little bit of a right brain, excuse me, a left brain interpretation of the markets there. And I'm willing to accept that that is wrong. But at least I have a plan for either outcome. That's for sure. Well, we've got lots of emotion on both sides on the choice of your cable network. Uh, so it's nice to look at what we uh, on a quantitative basis, what markets uh, are signaling. Yeah, that's what I think. Yeah. By the way, talking of which, uh, closing out the day here, S&P, uh, all the major indices, really U.S. equity market indices off fractional percent 
uh, S&P 500 down uh, 0.63%, uh, 3511. So it maintained the 35 handle from yesterday's rally. Uh, NASDAQ off 0.1% to 11863. That 118 is something we've seen a number of times before. Yeah. And if I can just take one peek to make sure. Yeah, I mean, look at the subsectors of tech that you still can't keep down on a day like today, right? They continued right along with the rallies that they put in yesterday. Look at the leaderboard today right over my left shoulder. It's the same names as usual. It's software, it's internet stocks, it's social media, it's cybersecurity, it's cloud storage. You know, it's the whole gamut of technology that I think may be opening up and rallying quite a bit to the idea of the lockdowns being lifted at some point. But that's just my guess. That's just my guess, Ashley. Yeah, I was just looking at Apple stock off 2.65% uh, on the day uh, to close at 121 spot 10. Uh, this was interesting to me because I was watching some of the coverage on their uh, 5G launch, the iPhone 12. Yeah, I'm not up to speed on the, um, the the Apple headlines today. I've been keeping an eye on it just via Fang, if that's fair to do lately. I just kind of been watching how the group of four does, um, you know, in between their earnings seasons here when they're not kind of shooting off in their own direction. And it seems like for the most part, the Fang complex has gathered itself and gotten back into rally mode. So that's something that you can point out to your friends that might be bearish stocks. You can say, you know, if you chart Fang here, it it kind of looks like it's breaking out to new highs again. And, and, and that's not the kind of move that I can fade the stock market with. What's the pattern there that would prevent you from fading? You don't want to go short this, but why? Well, it's more like, you know, Fang is the big driver of the markets, you know, the biggest beast in passive investing where every passive account and fund has got to own Apple, Facebook, Google. And, um, you know, those stocks becoming such a huge percentage of the S&P you have to sort of keep an eye on them as a group, as a whole, as, as whatever you want. But you really can't take your eye off of big tech nowadays, being as they are such a humongous uh, portion of these indices. And as they go, so are a lot of the underlying indices going to go and underlying ETFs going to go. And so that's the model that we've created with this right. you know, rise of passive investing. And maybe it unwinds one day and maybe it doesn't. But I'm not going to sit around and wait for that to happen either. Yeah, because you have to actually take action. Yeah, we're here to make donuts every day, right, Ash? Yeah. You know, it's funny. If I own the stock because you own the stock and you own the stock because I own the stock, it does set up this potential for a feedback loop effect, for a jump condition. Uh, if things start to move to the downside, if there's negative news flow, uh, you wonder if potentially that could be a discontinuous move to the downside. Oh, man. I mean, you know, nobody I don't think anybody has even gone through that as well as Real Vision in getting guys like Mike Green on to talk about it. And, you know, if you haven't listened to that one piece that he put out that was really focused on passive investing, he went through the mechanics of it brilliantly and took us through what could happen in a scenario where people become sellers net sellers of these big tech stocks rather than net buyers. And that, that'll be a definite market moving experience if we get to it. But that's must watch TV for traders. Yeah, Mike Green on passive indexation is one of the signature pieces uh, or series of pieces that Real Vision does. One of the best on, on the platform, without a doubt. And most necessary to know, you know, like just you have to have that within your knowledge if you're going to navigate these markets, right? It's like knowing where the sand traps are.
Yeah. Talking of that, Tony, how do you balance that out, knowing that there's this unknown risk that's lurking potentially out there uh, due to broader market dynamics and at the same time looking to get exposure for upside on the other side of the equation? I've never had the fear of selling things. Ash. You know, if I, I have no problem selling things what you're for a loss, for a profit. I sell things so that you can have the opportunity to get back in. And I think that that's how you navigate it, right? Like you're gonna, you, you, we know that the Federal Reserve is inflating assets. Could they pull the rug out from all of us at once and stop inflating assets and stop expanding the balance sheet? I suppose they could, but I don't know that that is in, in their interest. And it doesn't seem like in the last 10 years, they've given us any indication that they're gonna lay off the gas. And so that's why we've maintained a bullish posture, largely speaking, over the, the last 10 years, certainly, and even over the last two or three. And through the COVID pandemic, we even maintained a bullish posture. And this is what the Federal Reserve is up to right now. And I think that's the, the, the overlying story. And I think that's why big media probably has us focused on a lot of the underlying stories. That's the big story to me, what the Federal Reserve is doing in America right now. But that's why yeah. we're talking here, you know. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. So tell us more about where you think we are in that cycle. It seems very much to me that since. Jerome Powell at Davos said that he was going to let inflation run hot, that while we haven't sparked inflation, the market is responding very well to that guidance. And if we keep trying to trade from the playbook that they're the quarterback and they call the plays and we're the market and we go out and run them, you know, the, the, the Federal Reserve is still trying to connect passes and saying, look, we are here to inflate assets. If you have assets, you're going to be OK. And we are here to get inflation to run hot. And so since that's the target, I'm not the type of trader that sits here and looks to short things saying that they're going to be wrong. Right. I try to say, here's the playbook they're giving us. Let's look for the trades that where the risk reward lines up the best that gets us that exposure. And, you know, it's just a belief system. And, and for the last 10 years, once you implement it enough times successfully, you can you can get on board a little bit more easily the next time. You know, to extend that quarterback metaphor, it seems like sometimes uh, the news media focuses on the ball fake. You know, there's a tremendous amount of energy right now on both sides around the confirmation hearings of Amy Coney Barrett uh, down on the Hill. Uh, ridiculous amount of coverage uh, on, in both directions, uh, all of it very intense. Uh, on the presidential election, uh, but a very quiet, uh, shy, soft-spoken man gave a speech at Davos, uh, and that continues to be the most important driver of markets. Yeah, that's exactly right, Ash. And whether that's the story that they're covering up or whether that's what they really don't want to talk about or if it's something else, I mean, we could probably think of three or four other stories that they're purposely doing a look away on. They are certainly out there. But as long as Real Vision and, and we're around here to do honest analysis and people are willing to listen to it and uh, understand that that's maybe what's going on and maybe not what we're being told on other channels, I think um, we're doing the right thing in educating investors around the world. Yeah. 
I don't know if it's anything nefarious, Tony. I think it's just like the pressure on deadlines and news cycles and the way things flow to say, you can't write about that story. You wrote about it twice last week. You got to talk about something new. Well, but the story that really matters here uh, is probably central banks uh, and the role that they're playing in risk asset prices. Yeah, but that was last week's story. And the pressure goes to move to something new. And that's just the way the news cycle works. We are fickle as hell with the news cycle, aren't we? It's like if it's if it hasn't changed in 48 hours, what's next? Yeah. And what's driving clicks? And there's always something next in 2020, luckily. Yeah. Fortunately or unfortunately, I guess, depending on your perspective. Tony, what else are you looking at today? Man, Ash, you know, to, get, to cruise through the rest of the week, I'm still, you know, if I take a step back, um, I think that the market is still giving us a signal that it is on a very serious tear, even though today it's given pause and given a few basis points back. Um, given the data that came out today, I don't think that today's performance of the S&P is bad. I think rather it's taking a breath. So I'm trying to think of the S&P now as the Federal Reserve is trying to let it run hot. We just got through two big presidential hurdles. He had COVID. He punted the stimulus. And now we are in full infl reflation rally mode. And um, I feel like we might be in one of those runway periods where the stock market just goes cruising through the old highs, seeing as we just really pounded the downside very aggressively. And we're probably heading into a volatile but bullish news period heading into the election. And that's how I'm looking at it. So I'm trying to stay within the context of this move, stay with my long positions, move my stop losses up closer to the market to protect profits. And, and stick with the playbook that we're running. That's really what we're doing here. Yeah. How do you calculate that spread uh, for your stop losses? Uh, Ash, I'm usually trying to get into positions around the moving averages and put my stop losses below them. You know, if, if something that I'm long, God forbid, goes on a big run, you know, I still want to forget about the moving averages maybe, but move stop losses up to a level where I'm protecting profit and turning, you know, trades that were maybe breaking even into trades that have actually locked in money, right? So in the business of making donuts every day, keep moving your stop loss levels to right below the markets helps you preserve profits and stay really tight and disciplined with your trades. And when, when you have the uh, mentality that you have no problem buying something back, if you sell it for a profit on a rally and, you know, you have no problem buying it back on a rally or on a dip. That's how you stay with bull trends. And sometimes bull trends go on for years. So why not take the chance and buy something back? And that's just a little bit of a, you know, that, that's just the way I've grown up trading. Yeah. Do you think of it on a percentage basis? Does the percentage and distance from the moving average uh, affect that uh, positioning as well? That's more, I would say, a ratio of risk to reward, Ash. You know, I want to use the moving averages as my levers and right. my sort of points where I'm buying security at a certain price. I can put my stop loss below the moving averages where a technician has faith, you know, maybe that this, the price will hold. And then it becomes a matter of, you know, I'm kind of looking to make four and risk one, you know, and that kind of thing. Maybe it's make 40% and risk 10% or maybe it's 5% and 20% or something like that. But usually, you know, you want to have your risk reward with your eyes on a pretty big prize. Otherwise, you know that you, you're going to get chewed up on a lot of losing trades. Yeah, 
I hear you saying always asymmetric to the upside, uh, but very dynamic in terms of the way that you think about those positions based on what your confidence level is uh, in the particular uh, in the particular market. Fair to say, fair to say, everything has to have risk parameters. You know, both both the take profit level, a stop loss level, and an egg timer. Believe it or not. Yeah. You know, these uh, these may not be uh, the sexiest things to talk about, but they are some of the most important. Yeah, they're the nuts and bolts, right? You like to go back to that every once in a while and make sure that the tools are sharp and that you're, you know, you're, you're sticking to the principles that got you there, so to speak. And uh, that's it. It's just a part of being disciplined, Ash. Nothing wrong with that for a student of the market, right? Yeah, exactly. You said something earlier I'd love to hear you elaborate on. You said, I'm not afraid to sell something. What did you mean? Well, I have no problem, you know, um, I guess it comes from being a local on the floor where you have a badge and, you know, that badge is a highly transactional piece of equipment where you're constantly checking badge numbers all day long every time you do a transaction. So you learn something on the floor that the badge is what allows you to buy and sell things. So when something is rallying and it gets to your profit price or profit target level, you sell it. And then you still look around within the context of that move, knowing that this security is still in play. And just because you sold it, it doesn't mean that that trade is necessarily over. Right. right. Always look to the liquidity around you and get back right into the trade. Right. You can get in in a bigger capacity or a smaller capacity based on what the markets are telling you. But I think if you maintain that nimble stance, it prevents you from, number one, marrying positions and keeping them right. for too long. And right. staying with positions that aren't working and gets you to take profits and sort of lock in wins. And, you know, that's how you build up your that's the only way to build up your assets, in my opinion, is to keep taking wins off the table. So it's really just a, a, the method that you get into when you're trying to make the most out of uh, a move. You know, uh, Tony, on the flip side, the most important life lesson I learned uh, hanging out around uh, trading desks at banks for years was to cut your losers sooner rather than later. Yeah, man, if you have the if you have your hand on the exit button, life is much easier. You live with much less stress and uh, that's a much better way to trade and freer way to think. So it always pays off. It's just hard to do in practice. Yeah, very hard to do when there's real money on the table. Extremely. Tony, closing thoughts here today. Well, we're going to have to keep an eye on the inflation expectations, make sure they don't roll over and that this is just a pullback in the curve and the break evens and that this is just a bounce in the dollar. And with an eye on those macro trends that the dollar is still heading lower, that rates are still in a range, that commodities are still heading probably higher that we're in a pretty good scenario or a pretty good atmosphere for stocks, no matter what the, um, you know, no matter what the valuation guys tell you. So that's how I'm looking at it. I'm still looking at it within the context of this, you know, big bounces off of 3,200 and 3,350. And now we're in a move to the upside that's going to test the recent highs, if not take, and probably take them out is what I'm looking for. Tony, thanks for joining us. See you next week. Thanks for having me, Ash. We'll see you in a week, man. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. 
Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with lips and ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com.